fucking guy next door decides to hit his reverse siren exactly at the time we hit play, which is pretty much how episode 8, I believe, is fated to go. That doesn't stop anything. They think it stops it. No. Persistence is key. The only area of life where persistence doesn't help you is in picking up women seems to me that almost every other area of life um, persistence is the deciding factor in the spectacle in the desert of the real in the false dreams of Hollywood in New York of course persistence is totally irrelevant they reverse it so that your persistence persistence in buying their shit persistence in showing up and taking on those myths as your own is uh, is how they use that so episode 8 of the War Horse podcast jives pretty nicely with the final episode of season three, Twin Peaks. Why? Because for some reason, numeral eight is the symbol. It's the symbol for infinity, and it's also the symbol for the place where Dale Cooper goes to find Zhao Dai, Judy. As he exits the second to last episode, walking into and exiting that world which presumably is a dream within a dream I believe McCarthy has asked the question in presumably full seriousness is a dream within a dream still a dream this is key absolutely key it's seemingly suggested pretty strongly that Cooper is waking up within his dream and his mission we find out after all these years seems to involve a secret plan Gordon Cole and Diane. These characters do not seem to fit in the way that we, on a the sort of surface level, that they seem to within the, the narrative structure level, you know, 
Diane once worked with Cooper at the agency. Cole is both friend and co-worker, confidant with Cooper. Yet they can dream together. As Cooper moves from... Mind you, again, you know, he's just woken up from this childlike uh, nirvana blissful sort of existence boom just like that through the force of electricity and he exits that world by entering the hotel room number seven He's gone 430 miles, presumably from Twin Peaks, where he last was with Diane. Four plus three, seven. If we skip through the incredibly creepy final episode, not that you need to skip through it. No, I mean, I'm going to watch it. I hope to watch it. 25, 50 more times in my lifetime. But if we skip through in order to keep some coherence within this podcast, we have fully Agent Cooper has located what appears to be the fractured, a fractured version, one shard of we don't know. It's never made entirely clear. Of Laura Palmer. Who is the locus, of course, of his... It's the MacGuffin. Of course she is. She, But it's also... In a sense, you think it's Cooper's mission. There's a moment where Cooper is in this you know, non-coherent, limbo, purgatorial sort of state. The Red Room, the Black Lodge. And he runs into Leland Palmer, who's much older now, presumably is no longer encumbered and controlled by the demon Bob. And he, in that Weird why that they talk in the red room. He asks Cooper to find Laura. And it's it, it's almost like you know where we're driving here is a at least a quick study, maybe not too quick, but substantial anyway. Of Cooper as it as the the archetypal detective and so it's notable that in the Black Lodge he still has substantial wherewithal he still retains and he does not you know in previous 
instances and experiences uh, in this place. So, Leland Palmer, father of Laura, gives him the, almost a reminder. And the reason I, I'm hung up on this point is simply to, to wonder if Cooper is in a dream within a dream and he's outlined some sort of goals in this operation, we're told it's um, a two-part operation. Two birds, one stone. Presumably find Laura and either locate or destroy Judy. Judy, you'll recall, is depicted as this kind of pictogram on the Native American's hawk, Deputy Hawk. His uh, Native American heritage has apparently through the tribal lineage, or we're not quite sure, but he has this map, and he's aware of this creature. So the creature's been around for a long time, Judy Jowdai. Bad Cooper has sought this creature. Previous agents assigned to the Blue, Ro the Blue Rose task force have disappeared more than one as I recall and we're told this is some very serious shit so to trace it back together if we can Cooper exits the dream that is his dream and now he's dreaming but it doesn't appear that he is, you know, back to Dune, I guess. Uh, the sleeper awoke, and then things changed. They changed for Diane as she goes with him or joins him, and they change for Cooper. When we skip through the entire episode and we arrive at Laura's old house, where what we are told is the husk of her mother containing for I'm guessing my personal take on it is all of these years throughout the entire degraded disgusting saga that has been Laura's life and presumably the lives of her parents Bob the demon who is you kind of come around to realize what a powerful entity this dude is, has occupied her father, and Zhao Day, Judy, has evidently occupied her mother. Which goes a long way to explain how Leland Palmer is raping his daughter, Laura Palmer, for all these years, and yet Mommy just sort of decides to drink about it. Um... As they approach the house where the, the viewers, we as the audience, 
You know, we presume that we're in the same world that we were just in a few episodes ago, that Mrs. Palmer, Laura's mom, is probably in the house, or what remains of her, right? It's actually Judy. Cooper is absolutely, um, I mean, he's gone 25 years. He's gone to the edge of non-existence. He's lost himself for a period of time. He's regained himself. And throughout it all, he seems to have retained some alliance with the one-armed man. The wizard, who has given up his arm and has created this sort of, you know, the, the arm, and I sound like this. This sycamore tree with a sort of brain-looking thing on the top. And it's this character, the wizard, who leads Cooper on what seems to be his real mission. So was the mission in Cooper's world to, in, in his soul, right, in his deepest desires, was it to be um, an FBI man and to finish the job, to finish the mission, and to, I guess, reunite the fractured psyche of Laura to, you know, the fractured mother A lot of heavy, heavy implications on multiple levels going on here in terms of mother as the matrix, mother as the dreamer potentially, who dreams the child. We spoke earlier that in, I believe, another episode that the mother sort of there's a lot of mimicry. Again, Gerard is right here. So we won't take a big dump in his mouth. And there's the creation of the child's originating conscience. This right or wrong sense. Was Laura ever able to be put back together? I don't know. If the wizard, the one-armed man, and it does seem to be the case that he's helping Cooper all along. He's trying to wake him up from his coma state. He's monitoring all, all the moves that bad Cooper is conducting against good Cooper. Bad Cooper seems to be, as a side note, a doppelganger and not a tulpa, not a creation. Creations, you know, these this tulpa creation, the wizard has helped along the way, helped Cooper. He makes the version of Cooper who returns to Las Vegas and this life with um, Janie E and Sonny Jim. You gotta love Cooper, you know? And I will admit that I, up until this viewing, I was not sure if that was not the real Cooper. And it's in this attempt, 
personally to place the real Cooper, the multiplicities of Cooper, where I am, it's where I'm fixated. It's where the fascination is held. And as we were saying, the wizard recites the famous lines. One chance out between two worlds, fire, walk with me. Is Cooper the fire? Is the fire this, you know, aether fire, this quasi-electricity slash fire substance? Many, many ancient texts have spoken about this. It's my belief that that's the true nature of the world, that that's, you know, somehow related to what we call the Holy Spirit. Certainly what we, what we call the other world. We seem to have been created by God to perceive things in this, in this way, you know, and it's, it's staggeringly beautiful. And I have a lot of questions about why, most of which wind up back at this being a sort of protective scaffolding over the childlike human, you know, the nearly useless kind of relatively speaking useless and, you know, kind of pathetic creature. And yet, of course, it's cliche to say we, uh, we possess something, right? And uh, a lot of my big, big, big questions come back to this personally. And so I feel a strong need to discuss it, to put it out for the remnant. to mull it over, to hash it out, throw it all against the wall and see what sticks. Update on the donut shop, they just closed. And no sign yet of, um, of any hobo demons at present. Is, is it the case that the reason Cooper cannot return back to Twin Peaks, you know, the Twin Peaks that he knows, where on Laura's house we find the number 708? Seven where he just left, zero for the space between two worlds, and eight for infinity. We find instead of Judy a very strange sort of kind of like an NPC, almost an automatic, neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm sort of character who answers the door and tells 
both this woman who sure as hell looks like Laura Palmer and the guy who we know is Dale Cooper, who is now dreaming. A dream within a dream. It's my contention, my supposition, let's say, that he's inside of Diane's dream. At least this was the intent. We're told that things might get weird. We don't know or understand the entirety of Diane's psyche. We know she loves Cooper. We know she's loyal. We know that she suffered. We know that the multiplicities of women do not equal, add up, compare to, in any sense, in any way, the multiplicities of men. Whether Cooper is caught forever in some some space, some I mean, infinite, right? So, infinite. Maybe Philip Jeffries, uh, maybe the wizard, maybe new officers who, um, agents, excuse me, special agents who come into the Blue Rose task force will will have to go find him. We don't know. We're not supposed to know. And so I remain fixated on this question. Did... And and for this reason. In the first couple seasons, you know, we're introduced to this character of Dale Cooper as a sort of quirky, incredibly talented... 100% above board sort of flawless FBI agent. You know, he lynches hearkening back to pardon me the mythic origins of this agency. The imagery of it as polished and perfect and powerful and Cooper actually is that. I believe that we're supposed to take that as a given. And yet we were also supposed to take that while he upholds all of the strict standards of conduct and character that almost no FBI agent, perhaps in history, has ever... I don't want to sell him too short. You never know. Some of those old guys, you know, they, they might have been pretty damn solid. But certainly now, I do not think that these these character traits uh, are at all necessary. Nor <laughs> is not only are is the other side of Cooper not necessary; it's not even plausible at the at the absolute ex- ex- edge of my ability. To, to withhold my judgment, to suspend my belief, to you know make that bridge happen. The open-mindedness and 
the poise in the face of true ambiguity. I don't mean I have two conflicting files on my desk. I mean I have two conflicting you know worlds in front of me where which is where he winds up. I wonder if Cooper's heart in the complicated multi-dimensional fashion that we have to take him on is is satisfied you know with this result in some sense he asks what year is it it's as if his powers of presence knowing capability absolutely inflappable uh, unflappable excuse me in the face of the types of conditions that would melt the minds of virtually everybody that you know that we Certainly everybody we see on TV, everybody who is put up as a hero, um, most of the people that we probably know personally. This is unacceptable, by the way, on the War Horse podcast. This is antithetical to the entire focus, the entire intent, the beliefs of the War Horse podcast and of me, Andrew motherfucking Edwards. This is the case. This is, in a sense kind of kind of the perfect character um you know you may have and i may have different approaches to style again lynch is deploying that you know the swooped back incredibly thick head of hair the jawline the black suit this is fashion this is symbolism this is another form of communication this is Lynch being gentle on us, whereas in the same way, you know, I suppose that God is being gentle on us by preserving us, potentially, in a world where, you know, our perception is limited, evidently, it seems this way. And I don't mean in course not in the scientific scientism sort of sense that this is all boiled down to the interactions of molecules and matter themselves who which can't be the existence of nor the origins of which cannot be explained this the ontological positioning is merely pushed back further and further and further until you are the question is supplanted with authoritative bullshit like Great amounts of pressure and great amounts of time have resulted in this. Even though we don't have any experience with these things, we can make calculations and assumptions, and that's good enough for you. It's not good enough. It's never going to be good enough. And if it is good enough, 
not you guys, but for whoever out there, the guy who uh, started his reverse alarm right when we hit play or record, you know, I got to move on. I got a time crunch like you got a time crunch. We all do. And I will not be held up in these these wasteful eddies, uh, you know, where lives and dreams are pissed away. And so to take one last swipe, pardon me, a little parched, at the nature what what are we supposed to or what can we what is on offer in a study of this ambiguity surrounding Dale Cooper it seems to me that what he really wanted was to fulfill the wizard's mandate, dictum, riddle. He wanted to take the one chance out between two worlds. Whether fate has offered him this chance to both fulfill his heart's desire, if this is his heart's desire, and fulfill the the mission of the FBI... We're not sure. We're not going to know. In a sense, I think that one way we could interpret this is that Laura was fragmented. And these fragments exist in infinity. And if this return on my part to describe this place where Cooper winds out as infinity doesn't make sense again there's a moment where Philip Jeffries who has become this kind of teapot electrical circuit component also evidently sort of between two worlds as a wizard of one sort or another needs to lead you to find Philip Jeffries now and we're told we don't know quite where he is his smoke signals, which are emitted from this teapot-like appendage, show the pictogram, this bat, sort of a big dot with, it looks like, it kind of looks like an owl, you know? Um, it kind of looks like a bat. This pictogram changes and becomes infinity. And you see a little black ball circling on this track, this eight, figure eight track. And then Philip Jeffries locates. So in a way, maybe Philip Jeffries can locate as well. Cooper. Judy does not seem to be all powerful. It's never suggested that she runs infinity. How could she? It's never suggested even that the interplay between 
the Black Lodge and what I guess we can call the White Lodge, that is the fireman, um, is the only level. Non-existence is suggested. And here we might have, you know, an instance of David Lynch's more Buddhist, Hindu, Hindi leanings, his transcendental yoga meditation uh, inclinations would tend one towards these sorts of I don't know. I mean, they're not conclusions, though, you know. And he has, he has gone on record, uh, and, and created. As, well, it has resulted in one of the best memes of all time, where um, the interviewer asked, "Do you believe in demons?" He says, "Yes." We elaborate, "No." So, I, in a lot of ways, Lynch is a, one of one of several people that. I do not look down on in any sense, I, you know, and I don't say that he doesn't know because he's not orthodox or that he went the wrong way or that he's a purveyor of demonic narratives or the like. I don't take that tack at all. And um, question of Cooper's heart we see we seem to be told in the portal like moment where he and Diane consummate their love for each other even though we have the visual indicator that Diane has already like bef- once they make that transition past that 430 past world number seven they're in zero land at the edge of it somewhere and you know they park the car she's out a little out of it he's a little out of it they know things will change Cooper knows this she even Diane seems to know this and you know this is another telling feature of of Diane knows what's going on she knows what they're about to do They park the car at the presumably first hotel they come to out somewhere in the desert of the real or some other desert, desert of lost highways. And she's sitting in the car and sees herself staring back at herself from off in the distance. The one who's staring back, that is the one not in the car, strikes me as the dreamer. And so... This is one of these places where there's, there's huge amounts of information available. And to skip back, and then we'll move, we'll try to return here. As they're consummating their love for each other, two songs are played which in itself is a very strange thing to do during a love scene. It's jarring. It's odd. The first song talks about, it seems to be Diane's song saying, 
in the way that love songs do, you know, I want your heart to live in my heart. I want them to be one. And then the next song has to do, it seems to be more telling of Cooper's interiority. And it's more about being witness to that which he loves. And if we were to say that Cooper has a pure heart and that this story does actually have a happy ending of sorts, it may be that Diane dreams the dream so that Cooper can experience kind of the pinnacle of his this aspect of himself, the wizard aspect of himself who needs to take the one chance out and walk between two worlds. Again, it's an open question. Is he the fire? Is he walking with the wizard? Or together, are they beseeching, you know, this etheric fire that is used all throughout the that season for sure that's how they make the tulpas of course that's how good cooper is uh transferred into the body of dougie and then of course how he sort of comes to wake up by by uh sticking the fork in the socket so and uh, you know there's there's many other examples where there seems to be this entire array of an uh, an electrical like grid between the worlds in the tip you know depicted in the in the Lynchian manner sort of not sure quite how I would describe it but you know it and I know it so you can see now why I wanted to make sure to take this particular spot to record this particular podcast. I want to see the world of the donuts. Donuts as well being, you know, sort of a key element to Twin Peaks and, and even Dale Cooper. Um, but also this dark, this very darkened, half-constructed, sort of strange area over on the other side here where we perhaps a demon would emerge and in an effort to tie this back to this ongoing continuing conversation I will you will recall our discussion of the archetype of the detective in film noir and the importance of this character's emergence at a certain point in history. There's many, many factors. Uh, I think even Mr. LaFond has discussed the very recent addition of policemen which raises the possibility that the character of the detective has very little to do with law enforcement at all. 
and that perhaps he has existed throughout all time. Is he the wizard? Is he a sub-archetype of the wizard? Insofar as he... He's the detective. We find him moving between places of shadow and light. In uh, what they call mise-en-scene, I think. It's like how you construct the scene. The classic for me would be those slatted uh, blinds, those wood slats, and some heavy smoke in the air where you just see these bands of light and, you, you know, they'll be cutting into the floor, cutting into the darkness of the room. Maybe they're cut across the uh, detective's face or some character involved in his current case. And we can see that the detective is forced and he has an ability already. He has a predilection towards being able to think in black and white terms. And perhaps it's the case that people who can think in black and white terms, not always. So we might have an admixture, we might have some you know, third component, but in order to move through a gray area, It would, it would seem to follow to me that if you don't know black and you don't know white and you're in gray, you might become convinced that gray is what there is. And I'd like to try and segue this over to some thoughts surrounding fear. We're told that fear is contagious. We see this in the animal world where one animal will spook and the herd will bolt. We spoke of mimicry and it is the case. And this is why Gerard is such a, I think, a silly character because we all know that mimicry is done. What we don't know is that we can extrapolate out from this instantiation to the principle. That's bullshit. We can't do that. And if so, Gerard aside, we do live in a world where mimicry is rampant and encouraged in part because it keeps the herd moving in the direction that the masters of the illusion would wish them to go. With respect to fear, we seem to have lost within the, the mimicry, within the ongoing um, again, layer upon layer of recursive mimicry. 
we have lost a lot of our capacity. Maybe De Becker, you know, is correct. I think he is to a certain extent. That we have instincts and our instincts are not encouraged. And perhaps dealing with fear too, you know, has its instinctual origins. However, being, you know, 45 years old, almost 46, and having placed myself consciously and wholeheartedly in various insular sort of masculine spaces where again language languages other than words are often used to communicate i've seen both the 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 example of the mimicry of the false leader arriving the group to a shitty location i've seen the opposite where the right leader has has risen up or been chosen and this person's ability to translate his particular relationship with fear was effective for at least for the time at least for those circumstances and father to son brother to brother friend to friend um, seems to be the proper way for boys to learn this and for listeners of this podcast you know we don't need to go into the entire history the degradation of masculinity and whatnot plenty of other guys work in that side of the street what I wish to propose Excuse me while I get another sip here. What I wish to propose is, if not encapsulated, at least suggested in this passage from The Violence Project Fist to Blade by James LaFont From what I gather this is the republication of two books, The Fighting Edge and The Logic of Steel that were banned um, as singular books by Amazon but allowed to be stuffed into one volume so grab it I would suggest I do suggest it. Pardon me. In the first volume, maybe a third of the way through, Mr. LaFawn turns his attention. I should say this book is very well organized. Um, You know, he's, he breaks it down into the question, you know, the question of, okay, so you want to add some violence Uh, some practical violence capacity to your life. Um, You know, chapter one, reality. Two, motivation. Three, understanding the martial arts. Four, personal risks. 
fighter's mind, the fighter's body, etc. Um, he's a very thoughtful writer and extremely experienced in a way that I think offers us um, an advantage. So we're in this chapter seven, the fighter's mind. And we're talking about emotion. Quote, fear and anger are opposite reactions to aggression. Both will inhibit intelligent action in the face of danger, and both may be harnessed to deal with aggression. The emotional goal of the survival fighter is identical to that of the combat athlete. Sustained, controlled aggression. Sustained, controlled aggression. The behavioral mechanisms used to channel these instinctual responses are courage for dealing with fear and will for dealing with anger. Pretty straightforward. Pretty solid. Two pages beyond, he's talking about, you know, a couple different... He's being extremely honest in his experience. And this... The reason I believe he is being very honest is because I have, I have a very similar... Um, set of experiences in terms of sensation um, reaction etc and he's talking about self-hatred being one of his most reliable survival tools essentially he is just not going to let this happen um He has this sentence here which I wanted to share. So he's going through, he's saying, When I've hit the bottom of the fear curve, it takes about a second. I get intensely angry at myself for being a wimp, a bone rack, a failure in the ring, a joke on the mat, and for being a 35-year-old stock boy. Why live? Life sucks. My piece of junk body is going to pay for all the times it fails me. I hate him for reminding me of my fears and so I'm taking him to hell with me, this being his opponent. Then this is the key point for me. This is followed by growling, very basic techniques, an urge to jump up and down on his head, memory lapse, loss of sensation, which makes me work harder so I can hear the impact I so desperately want to feel, loud ringing in the ear, which intensifies the insanity. The episode will be followed by uncontrollable shakes guilt, embarrassment, and a passive-slash-suicidal state of mind. If I use a weapon, I only get the shakes. This is page 83 in The Fighting Edge, contained within the two-volume set called The Violence Project. So, it is true that certain things can only be experienced. Mike Pannone told me that pulling the trigger is the exact same thing as throwing a punch. He said if you can throw a punch in anger or have, then you have made the mechanical and physical biological operations 
to end a life, presumably. And that has always stuck with me. I don't, you know, I'm not going to comment. I, I We could go into a, a little tide pool um, and splash around there, you know, regarding Panone's quote. Um, I'm, am, I have some ambivalence about it, but at the same time, there's some serious truth in that. And um, I have a lot of respect for Mike Panone and his experience. So I think, I think whether you know you agree, disagree, find some more nuance in it or whatever, I, I think it's, I have found that it's very much worth considering. And in this attempt to sort of pivot from the detective and the dream, we're just going to pivot into fear in general, is my, my intention here. For one reason being that fear seems to, in my experience again, I have not dreamed as far as we know in your mind yet. It could happen. Could be, could be awesome. Um, but maybe not if we dream in my mind because oftentimes I would describe the tone, the tonal qualities there, there have been plenty of instances where it's just pure fear. Terror is what I would, I would call it. Is concentrated fear has, has gone into terror. More often, much, much more often than that, though, that's fairly rare. Um, I can detect um, in the way that tones merge, right? You have A the note A, the note D, the note E, these things, this is the one, uh, the four and the five, right? Yeah. Um, That create, um, excuse me, I'm I'm forgetting my my music theory. Yes, one, four, five. You have um, harmonious notes here. Um, And these, these, you can play these three notes and get the chord A. Um, so that last part, I'm not certain about. I'm, I keep thinking that it's the third. Either way, the point is not this. The point is, is that you have certain notes that are harmonious, and you have certain notes that are disharmonious, and these these are these can be referred to as tones. That's what they are. If I hit the note A along with the note D, you were, you were going to experience, this was, this was the level that the old masters could play on. And to some degree, you know, I guess we all can play on this level, but great classical music these composers understand that certain tones affect the human body differently. And perhaps they were just, I mean, they were geniuses, many of them. However, they seem to have been gifted with some extra sensatory or sensitivity 
and then other gifts, right, in order to wrap this up into a rhetoric. And in the rhetoric of dreams, whoever may be the dreamer and the sound editor, if you will, in my experience, will mix and match these tones such that you know, oftentimes uh, it'll just be a sort of pervasive sense of um, strangeness, um, bizarre, not entirely in disharmony. However, you know, that, that is an experience that you can have in life and dreams as well, certainly, where things are just clanging up against each other. In terms of practicalities, I think it's extremely practical to get ourselves to a place where we're discussing fear and the reality of it in the open manner and the very acquainted manner you know, acquainted with his interiority that Mr. LaFond is doing so in this, this section because we'll get to De Becker, but as he suggests, you know, there's instinct involved in this. I, where I sort of diverge from De Becker is that he's claiming that all instinct is positive. That's a simplification. That's something that was made for the polish of the book to make it, a, you know, a bestseller. That's not a known fucking fact. Case closed. Much of the supposition uh, that De Becker seems to entertain is also rooted in a type of biological determinism, materialism, leading, you know, eventually to an evolutionary type of theory, I would presume. Which again, it don't, it don't suffice. It's easy to sell on. It has enormous explanatory power. But I am not one who is satisfied with leaving, I think I see my demon. I'm feeling fear. Nope, no demon. Not my daemon, my demon. Whew. I know you guys think I make this stuff up, but I'm not that good of an entertainer. Um, so literally, you know, I feel, I feel the sort of tingling, what people describe as the hair on the back of your neck stand up. My neck immediately straightens. And it doesn't always, I don't always walk around. I'm not one of those stiff neck type of dudes. And I, I usually personally have several seconds. I would say that orientation, that UDA, um, for whatever reasons of the, um, the absent-minded professor mind, this seems to work to my advantage. 
in other cases, you know, it probably doesn't because, I mean, if the threat is moving at light speed and, and yes, I'm orienting to it, and I have, but I have not felt fear, well, that's good, but maybe you haven't felt the fear fast enough, right, into Becker's terms. In my terms, see, I, I'm pushing for another angle here. I'm pushing for further query and rounding back around to Dune, to Frank Herbert, and to his formulation of this issue. It may, you know, strike people as cliche, but I've been with Dune for like 25 years, and I'm still with it. I'm with the whole series, um, and I think there's just massive treasure troves of value in those books. You all know how it goes. Um, I will let the fear pass through me, and only I will remain. Fear is the mind killer. You know as well that, and I think this is in some way what LaFond is describing, the mind can be killed and you can still fight. You can still even win and you can still have coherent thoughts. Their applicability is, you know, it could be pretty variable, but... um, the mind seems to have been put on pause and yeah other instincts growling is a good one and if you in my experience that if you feel terror that that fear has compounded you absolutely need and and you you can make this choice this is this state this weird state of your mind is not entirely intact anymore but there are thoughts and in my experience this is the daemon maybe it's your your guardian angel but it's a it's an other voice this is not you and of course even in this podcast as we've set it up you know together you is somewhat of an open question. There's a self that seems to have components. And so we're not on, you know, uh, uncertain or unstable ground here to say that, I mean, and I'm just reporting my experience. Uh, this is how it, this is how it's experienced for me. And, um, it is as if, you know, there is an ally, there is a coach or a helper, and it's almost encouraging you, okay, yeah, terror is now here, so, uh, you know, I formulated this in King of Dogs as, um, to the meeting with terror, you wear the suit of faith, and faith is, faith has been here the all seven and one half episodes and then of course in the pilot and we will turn to more direct explicit discussion I think that the faith right there you can see is already evident and it's the kind of faith where if you're listening to another voice in your mind who I'm identifying as a daemon because I think that's 
you know, an interesting and sort of fun uh, moniker to apply. We're already at a place of faith. You're not going to stop and say, well, Neil deGrasse Tyson or um, whoever else said, you know, this is not possible and I can't. So, well, at that point, it's over. So there does seem to be a survival component. It doesn't seem, I mean, it is the case that faith, you know, we have faith just that the sun will rise tomorrow. We have faith that the parameters of gravity will be pretty much consistent when you get out of the truck and take your first step, etc. We have faith about all of these things, but it seems to be subsumed in the same way that our abilities to leverage... But De Becker, again, seems to be you know, sort of infatuated with fear, which I believe comes out of this evolutionary sort of worldview. Personally, I'm going a different direction. And I think that that distinction may be important. I'm going not in the direction where we sort of just, you know, train and let these things fall in their place. And then at, the, at showtime, you know, what, you know, try and remember some stuff I read in a book, try and let this book like assuage my anxiety about training. I'm not entirely sure, but I'm not going there. I'm going to the place where faith, when we are honest about it, is already extant in everything we do. And Fear is also extant in probably a lot more than is necessary, but, um, and it's, it's just say, I don't want to say in almost everything, but there is this, I have at least a sense that fear is multiplying now and it has been for some time. And back to the masculine thing, we can probably place this, you know, this, the burdens of its origin onto our forefathers' shoulders or maybe our own shoulders. And we know, of course, that in the end, it is what it is as uh, to deploy the shittiest phrase ever concocted in the English language, that being it is what it is. We have to, if we've identified this, you know, we need to deal with it. And so when I ponder Herbert's configuration, there's a few notable pieces. I let the fear pass through me. It's not said that I move through fear, that I instigate and I walk faster and harder and more in a more dedicated fashion or I puff up my chest and plow through it. Quite the opposite. And it's in some it's in something like that that it's it's it's, we're living in a time where there's enough illiterate and enough um, degraded attention spans that 
a nuance there is, is very easy to brush aside. So once again, the fear passes through me. And so this seems to suggest very clearly, I don't, I don't even think it's a suggestion. You are one somewhat permeable. You are open. You are flexible like the reed in a psychic or, you know, this brings up again the, the, one of our themes and this is again a problem inherent to these other configurations is if this is an electrochemical relationship happening between salt molecules and, and carbon molecules and some weird configuration born out of a time when we were monkeys, um, one, how does it apply? Two, why didn't it change along with us as we became non-monkeys? And three... How would the timing on all of these things still be in some, some sort of con- constant such that the value would be there? This is the point where faith is bridging all of these gaps and something else, God, is adjusting accordingly. You know and I know and every book ever written about fear and fighting knows that time dilation is a real fact. And... The sleeper awakens in Dune, right? And then he fights a giant fucking war. And he seems to be fighting it from a a detached, almost timeless space where he's the general, he's the soldier, he's doing all of these things and experiencing this. And so it's not to, you know, jump over to McCarthy and, you know... uh, War is the ultimate trade of man. Though, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna not eventually go there, of course, but that's not exactly the turn we're making. Rather the turn would be Is fear actually not internal to you? but external to you. Is it really, the, is the configuration that you have fear, you have the various voices in your head, which even the evolutionary uh, configurations seem to suggest that somehow you're going to have these thoughts at the right time. You are simply not going to train for every permutation. You couldn't train for every permutation of going to the fucking grocery store. Case closed. How are you going to train for it? You can have, at the sub-level, what LaFond offers, which is why I appreciate it so much. And that's the reality for probably almost all of us. In the final analysis, how many of us, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say uh, one of us is not going to become like Muad'Dib or, and I've not seen the new one yet, so if there's new shit or whatever, I'm not hip to it, but I'm a, I'm a classicist on this one. And personally, it's my choice to say this is a limited view of the possibilities. And this may be, again, due to my own little weird predilections of I, too, when fear hits, it hits like a fucking train. So I think that, if anything, my daemon is... 
is saying, whoa, 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 don't hit this motherfucker with all that just yet. Out of like mercy or something. And that's why I tend to, I tend to seemingly get a few more seconds than most, what most people get. And I'm not saying this is a huge advantage. I'm not saying that I'm, uh, you know, Clint fucking Eastwood. I'm just saying this is my experience of it. And I'm also attempting to scale this out and pose some questions regarding the nature of fear. How do we really approach it? How do we interface with it? And is the training we do really that effective? Is it even necessary? You know, these are open questions. Every, every dude on Tactical World, on Instagram or wherever, and them that are selling programs specifically to, you know, they have their opinion and I have mine. And that's not to get in anybody's face in this regard. I probably have not studied their shit anyway. So it's, it's, it's coming at you and hopefully them, if uh, they were ever exposed to this, you know, from another level of abstraction. And... The question on this level is, we know that our perception is drastically limited, I mean, in every possible sense, right? In light, bandwidths of light, um, wavelengths of sound, uh, perception of color, distinctions, uh, frame rates, insofar as those apply to the human experience, etc. And... There are a lot of very thorny questions. We're not going to get into them at an hour uh, 15. Though we may explore them a little bit in, in hour two. There are a lot of thorny issues that evolutionary types would have to deal with very directly and not their usual dismissive, overhand, you know, underhanded bullshit um, regarding these issues of time and perception and what you know we're what they would call instinct and what i believe is something else that's happening something more uh, closer to fate destiny and i don't mean in the in the predetermined sense in any not at all i mean if you have god on your side what does that mean I think it means a lot of things. And in this relationship to fear directly, acutely in a fight, that would be one. And this relationship with a pervading low-grade tone of fear to the dream that we are all seemingly living, it would mean yet another. And this may be, you know, um, the one that we should concern ourselves with I might, I might suggest uh, a little bit more. And I'm not entirely certain in any sense uh, what that would look like. Because, as I've said, you know, the acute part of it, I would suggest uh, you take some very open-minded philosophers, some very open-minded and very good serious warriors... You make a, um, a small war and you justify it 
for whatever, you know, ideology, oil, drugs, what have you. But you make the real study, the real purpose of the war, um, you know, experiments in terms of, I know that these fuckers would just go to stoicism first thing and try and implement that, but I would ban stoicism and I would insist on a type of mysticism. You see how Dale Cooper kind of swings back at this point. And um, with stakes, you know, the stakes being what they are in war, one would wonder what kind of variable this would add to your study. Now, on the larger scale, I don't know. I mean, how do I even tell the average guy over at the donut shop that it says in the movie that you guys just watched last weekend that you stand, and yet you stand permeable and wide open, and you let the fear, you let, you choose, you use your will to make a decision of a certain abstract sort to let the fear pass through you. I suppose evolutionists, or maybe the guy at the donut shop would just say, okay, so I just kind of wait and sort of pause, yeah, and then I'm letting the dopaminergic uh, shitstorm that just was unleashed from the base of my spine at blinding speed in unknown quantities sort of dissipate and um, I will retain my ability to think clearly even though the same thinking led me to the donut shop yeah I can't think that would be kind of what they would say but if the moments of your life add up to your final battle where I believe that time changes entirely and the nature of all of these acquisitions of experience may shift such that as they say that everything flashed before my eyes well maybe it doesn't flash before everybody's eyes maybe there's a different experience for some people dependent upon how they approached these many seemingly mundane instances, moments of their life. You hear this in hippie terms with being present, living in the moment. There's nothing wrong with these sorts of phrases other than once again they're lost in the cultural divide and become sorts of like you know, silly ideology when they could be developed into something extremely powerful. Something that would allow every, you know, you, me, whoever to discover meaning in every moment and thereby inform their choices. I think the, the, the syllogism is, um, the key to happiness is freedom and the key to freedom is courage nowhere in there is IQ but the question of happiness of course is that even possible and freedom as well is 
responsibility, you know, dedication, these things seem to inform meaning. So courage being, you know, ultimately in that syllogism what you're supposed to arrive at. I'm not bagging on courage, right? Um, But in the confrontation with fear and in the confrontation with our fellow man in this interface that seems to be clouded by fear on both ends of a low-grade sort, pervasive, you know, becoming the norm, becoming the gears of the mimicry, if you will. In this interface, I would suggest, you know, some other qualities may uh, faith in interpersonal terms usually looks like um, generosity sorge basic human kindness benefit of the doubt in the place where I am at which is not I don't know that it's even old enough to have like a an urban character, but I can tell you that it's highly influenced by Los Angeles, and um, I would not, I could count the number of people who have initiated conversations, just, or just saying, hey, how's it going? Hi, on the street, on the sidewalk, Uh, easily on one hand, you know, in eh, probably about a, a year, let's say, total. This may be, I'm sure sure it is, how would we suss it out, partly attributable to COVID, etc. However, in terms of a template, you know, we may, and on, once again, to be clear, low-grade fear. So to close out this hour with with Dale Cooper, this is one of Dale Cooper's qualities that makes him so lovable. And I think a more pessimistic asshole would try and separate these qualities from his other very austere, very cold, judicious, they would merge these into instinct, what have you. However you want to separate them out, you have in Dale Cooper a generosity of spirit, a joyfulness, um, certainly a sense of humor, and a sense of being present in every moment. You know, we are told in season one, in uh, any number of scenes, we're shown depictions of his unorthodox methods. Um, I guess we're to accept, and I do, that this integration has arrived through practices like meditation. I would suggest, he does a kind of yoga in the series, and I would suggest that too is prime as well as 
any number of other practices that we've touched on this podcast. And you can go back into the library and start picking through them and there will be more coming in when we make it out of this never-ending, infinite, number eight episode of the War Horse Podcast. For subscribers, you know what's coming. For new listeners or those folks who have not subscribed yet, you can find all of the information on my website, goldengoatguild.net, or you can go to Instagram, which is the main base. The handle is goldengoatguild. If you want to subscribe, I want you to subscribe. You can go to Instagram and follow the links in the bio to Patreon. You can also go direct to Patreon if you know how to navigate things, and you can find Golden Goat Guild. If you ever have trouble with any of this, you can DM me, or you can find my email on the website, goldengoatguild.net. If you made it this far and this stuff is of interest, then please dive in. Um, And for subscribers, hang on one second.